Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lippman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this privilege we have to study the Word of God together, and you can study the Word of God with us as Christians, as Jews who love the Bible and want to understand the truth of the Bible. And Rabbi, as we gather together via the telephone and via the internet and the radio to talk about the weekly Torah portion, in Hebrew it's called parashah. It is a subset of the Torah, a subset of the Bible text that Jews have been reading together for about 3,000 years every week on Shabbat. Talk about the history and the mechanics and how this this portion was divided up and just explain the whole process. Well, there's actually uh, quite a bit of history uh, regarding all of this. And there were times in history when the portions were divided up differently or they weren't divided differently. I should say they only read one third of it per week and went through the full Torah every three years. But now we have a division uh, into the 52 portions uh, that are going back thousands of years to the times of our, of our sages and the men of the Great Assembly, and even before that, ultimately going to Moses, but passed down from generation to generation. And every single week, we read one portion, every synagogue in the world, regardless of background, regardless of denomination, uh, there's one portion that's being read, and we actually complete it every single year at the end of the holiday of Sukkot, at the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, we have Simchat Torah, where we celebrate the completion of the entire cycle. And what's interesting is that each of the portions is actually divided to seven parts. And there are some who actually have a custom of reading one of those parts every single day. And that way you get through the whole portion uh, every single week. There are five books, as we know, the five books of Moses, and each one has somewhere around 11 or 12 uh, portions, depending on uh, the size of it. And they're very thematic in nature. Uh, the five books. They're divided up by themes, uh, as opposed to the portions, which can't always be divided uh, and might even interrupt the middle of the story, going from one to the other. The books are very much divided uh, and thematic in nature, as we'll see as we go through them. But that's the general background to the uh, portions. And like I said, the realization that every place in the world where Jews are coming together on Sabbath morning, on Saturday morning, uh, they're reading the same portion. It's a unifying factor. Everyone's learning the same messages, discussing the same topics, and it's a really powerful concept. And each portion has a name that comes from the first word or the first keyword from each section. Talk about that. I look at the names and I always think to myself, well, it's just the first name of the portion or close to the first name of the portion. But there's tremendous significance that's placed on the name of the portion where a lot more is read into it than it's simply being just the first or one of the first names of the portion. And it somehow defines uh, what is taking place during that portion. So we are going to begin this annual reading cycle that we call the weekly Torah portion or the Parashah in Hebrew. And obviously we begin at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And this Torah portion is called Bereshit. It is the name of the book of Genesis in Hebrew, Bereshit or Bereshit. And it means in the beginning, the first three words of the Bible. And so, Rabbi, when we talk about the creation story, we're talking about an all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign creator who, by his own will and his own desire, chooses to create first the physical universe and then human beings. And let's start with the idea that God, who is eternal, he is always in existence, voluntarily chose to create. No one forced him. No one made him. He wasn't bored. He wasn't dared. The universe that we live in and the human race that we have was the voluntary choice of a sovereign God. I'm so happy that you captured it that way. And it's something which is not talked about enough. 
God, exactly as you said it, he didn't need to create us. He wasn't bored. It was a choice. And actually, when we see later on that man is created in God's image in this portion, many of the commentaries say that's exactly what God's image means. It means that we have choice. Uh, we, we're a being that, that has choice. And this very first verse actually captures tremendous theology about God. Because our commentaries say, breshit, just that word in the beginning, that captures the beginning of time. Time begins. God is not bound by time. God is above time. Breshit, all of a sudden there's a concept of time. And then within that framework of time, God creates shamayim and aretz, which very often people translate as the sky and the ground, but it actually means the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Time starts, God creates space. The physical realm, God creates the spiritual realm. He's beyond all of that. He's not a superhuman being. He's not bound by any of the rules that we understand in terms of existence. And that's established right there in the very first verse. Rabbi, when I teach this passage, the first verse in the whole Bible, I often describe it as a fork in the road. You either are choosing a world that is ruled by a creator and therefore someone that we bow down to, someone we are accountable to, or you choose the other fork in the road and try to imagine a world that's godless, a universe that's accidentally created, that's good luck out of cosmic happenstance. And so the first verse really is the fork in the road of going down a life of theology or of atheism. I have to tell you, I have the privilege of studying every day with a 95-year-old gentleman who lives in my building, and we were studying this portion, and we were discussing the different theologies or different uh, philosophies, and he said to me, uh, and he's a very open-minded person who's willing to hear other ideas, he's, and he said, I don't understand the explanation that it happened by itself, because even those who say that there was a big bang out of nowhere have to agree that there were chemicals or particles that that led to that Big Bang, that were part of that Big Bang, which formed everything else. And where did those come from? You're always going to come back to that question, and they don't have a scientific answer to that. And therefore, uh, yes, there is that fork in the road. And, and I believe that science and uh, using our minds and intelligence actually leads us to the conclusion that Breshit bara Elohim, that God created the world, because there's no other plausible explanation. And you just said it, Bereshit bara Elohim, that verb bara in Hebrew is the verb for created. And my understanding of the Hebrew Bible is that verb bara is only used with God as the subject of the sentence. So if a person makes a painting or writes a poem or writes a song or builds a house, it's a different verb for create. That one only applies to God. Absolutely. And the, and the term that we use in Hebrew is that word is used for creating yesh me'ayin, which means creating something from nothing. And the only being that can do that is God. Uh, human beings cannot do that. Uh, even when we watch the best of magicians, when they're honest with us, they tell us that it's sleight of hand and nobody's creating something out of nothing. So that's why I'm, I'm really amazed and impressed, actually, that, that, that you picked up on that or saw the commentaries on that. It's a terminology used for the being that can create something from nothing. In Latin, we have the term ex nihilo, out of nothingness. So that's how God created. He didn't go to Home Depot and gather up a bunch of materials and build a house. Ex nihilo, out of nothingness, is the term that is used in Latin. And we continue through Genesis chapter 1, and this first section is all about the creation story. And we know there were six days of creation. And you look at verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. That's verse 4. Verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, one day. And for our Gentile audience who's not used to a day starting an evening and ending at sundown, this is exactly why that calendar works that way, because evening came before morning in Genesis 1. Absolutely, and that plays a role in, in Jewish law. Uh, just as an example, the Shabbat begins on Friday night. Uh, the holidays begin at night. A person turns 
bar bat mitzvah at night. The day begins when the sun goes down and when it gets dark outside and, and then concludes the following night when the sun goes down. That's the way we uh, mark the passage of time. I also want to mention, you know, when it says that God created light, light as we know it is the sun, the moon, which reflects off the sun. That's in day four. We'll get to that later. What is this light? So we understand that God created the concept of spirituality, spiritual light, and that counters the darkness described in the previous verse because the land all by itself, it's physical, it's material, it's darkness, it's confusion, no possibility for growth, no possibility for connection to God. Then God comes along and says, he or he creates that possibility for things within the physical earth and ultimately man to actually connect to the spiritual. And one of the things I find very interesting, verse 4 says, God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, God saw that it was good when he created the dry land and the gathering of the waters. And verse 12, after he brought forth the vegetation, God saw that it was good. It's not as if God could have made it poorly, if God could have messed up on it. So no, no kidding that it was good. What do you think the teaching is here that when a perfect creator creates something, it is by definition good? What are we saying here when it says God saw that it was good? So most of the commentaries understand actually that good in this context means it reached its final stage. There was a process of creation, and then it reached a stage in which God was, uh, was going to keep it. You'll notice that it's not going to say that about man because man is a work in progress that continues throughout every human being's lifetime, as we'll talk about when man is created. But for everything else within the physical realm, right, the, 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 the tree or the ground or anything else, the, uh, animals and birds, they don't have a perfection to achieve in their lives. So they have reached their final state. And that's what we say it means uh, when it says that God determined uh, that it was good. It was in its position to keep its final place. Commentary on the idea of evolution and macroevolution, that one species turns into another species. One biblical argument against that is, in verse 11, it says, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind. Verse 12, plants yielding seed after their kind. And so what happens is, it also says that in the animal kingdom, verse 21, every winged bird after its kind. So birds procreate and they have birds. Fish procreate and they have fish. Gorillas procreate and they have gorillas after their kind. It's a scientific argument against the idea of macro evolution. And if the truth is, we, uh, within the Jewish faith, there is definitely space for some kind of an evolutionary process, but I want to emphasize, and no one misunderstands me, under God's domain. Uh, and therefore, there's no contradiction if there's something which is found where there was some kind of a progression. We understand that it was under God's domain, and therefore that's fine. And the one exception to that, though, is the human being, which did not evolve from something lower, but it was a brand new being, Adam, when we get there, with a soul, and did not evolve uh, naturally from uh, something else. But I also uh, very much agree with your point. This is one of the reasons why it's forbidden for us to play around with creation and mix and match animals and, and try to create new beings. Uh, God created a very orderly world where things were supposed to be uh, in their order, procreate uh, for their kind, and we're supposed to keep it that way. We get to Genesis 1.26, and we have a lot that we can talk about here. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we'll get to verse 27 in a moment, but Rabbi, I think this is a theological debate we have here between Christians and Jews. We believe in what's called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, Adonai Echad, but manifested in three ways. And so we say that when this verse 26 says, let us make man in our image with these plural pronouns, we believe there's a conversation going on amongst the Trinity here. For those who don't ascribe to the theory of the Trinity, who is the our and us in the verse? So the commentaries take two different approaches uh, to deal with that. One is that God consulted with the angels, 
And the question is, why does God have to consult? And the answer is he doesn't, but he's teaching us that no one should ever think that you're beyond consulting with those who are quote-unquote inferior, or those who are below you. you. There's always people to ask and get advice from and to be willing to learn from all. But the commentary which I really connect to relates to what I said a few moments ago, which is that it's God together with man. God creates a, a person, a human being, with the help of the mother and the father, uh, but we're given our talents, we're given our skills, we're given the environment, but then we have to do something with it. And we have to turn ourselves into a man, into a human being. And therefore, it's the partnership of God together with the actual person who's created that's the we will make man together. Verse 27, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we had the Latin of ex nihilo earlier. Now we have the Latin phrase imago Dei, in the image of God. This is the Lord who is sovereign, who is all-knowing and all-powerful and eternal, willingly choosing to give some of his attributes to mankind. We are not creator, we are creation, and we use in our church the term the communicable attributes of God. He gives us things that he can give us, that we can have, like love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, judgment, decision-making, things that he can give us. There are incommunicable attributes of God, like omniscience, like omnipotence, like eternality, like sovereignty. We don't receive the incommunicable attributes of God. We receive the communicable attributes of God, and that's what's meant by the Latin phrase, imago Dei, in the image of God. Absolutely. And the things that we have to remember is God doesn't have an image. He's not physical. He doesn't have traits. You know, people talk about image of God must be physical. So it clearly refers to character traits and things which we can try to be like God in how we act. And the first step to that is free choice. But then there's also the potential for real compassion, the compassion for mercy, uh, all the attributes, and to be creators ourselves, which God certainly uh, gives to us, uh, and creators with a purpose, not just creators because it's nature, right? Animals also are creators and providers, but we're doing so with a higher purpose, and that's what makes it in the image of God. And very importantly, in the culture in which we live today, verse 27 says, male and female, he created them. And we have the whole transgender movement and gender identity questions and all of these things. I think without being disrespectful to anyone who feels that they struggle with those issues, I think God clearly delineates male and female when he creates us. He creates us perfectly. He doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't make it an optional thing. And our world, I believe, suffers when we try to redo what God has already done. And I believe that's part of what's going on culturally with this transgender idea. Yeah, we, and it's possible that people are created with certain challenges, and, and I'm not in that position, so it's hard for me to uh, comment about that. But you definitely see a very specific order uh, in which God uh, created the world. And as you said, it was very, very clear uh, delineations. And I'll go further. We also talk about gender roles. It doesn't mean that one is uh, superior and one is inferior, uh, but there's no doubt that uh, it was created with a purpose. You actually see it a little bit and when it gets to the curses after their sin in chapter 3, uh, that they have very specific roles in terms of the way God wanted the world to, to function. It doesn't mean that uh, we can't go beyond those roles, but we can't forget uh, those primary responsibilities as well. And we can talk about that as we go further. Let's look at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I have given you every plant yielding seed on the surface of the earth, every tree which yields its seed. It shall be food for you and every beast of the earth and bird of the sky. I have given every green plant for you. Verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. And we'll talk about Shabbat and the calendar in a moment. But this is sometimes called our assignment of dominion. We are not the creator, and we're surely not the creator of this universe, physical earth. 
but we are to take care of what God created. And we know that those who are rejecting a benevolent, holy, righteous creator God sometimes are predisposed to worship the creation. They worship the sun or the moon or the mountain or the river instead of the God who created those things. So we're never to worship creation, but we're to take care of what God created. There's a movement in Christianity that's called creation care. We don't try to ruin the earth and pollute it because God made it, but we don't worship it either. Uh, we have a tradition uh, in our, one of our teachings that after creation, God took Adam and showed him all of creation the whole world, and said, this is the beautiful world that I created, and now I'm giving it over to you to take care of, but also to make use of. So you have the combination of to make use of it and also to care for it. We don't waste things if we don't have to waste them, but obviously if there are things that we have needs for, uh, then we're meant to use the world for that. But there definitely is an idea of, of taking care of this beautiful world uh, which God has created as a tribute to God, exactly as you said. By the way, Maimonides says, if you try to figure out where did idolatry even come from, because you have Adam who was created, he presumably taught this to his son, who taught this to his son or his children, where, where is there a place for idolatry? And he actually says that it started with a desire that people had to pay tribute to God. And they said, we want to pay tribute to God, so let's see. Oh, the sun uh, is doing God's will by providing us with light. We'll pay tribute to God via the sun. We'll pay tribute to God via this mountain. We'll pay tribute to God via this beautiful tree. And the problem with that is uh, through time, the, the message changes and people start worshiping the items themselves. And as we finish Genesis chapter 1, we could talk about it for many more hours, but let's r remind ourselves of one final point. Every aspect of God's creation was beautiful. It was perfect. It was as he designed but only one aspect of creation received that label, Imago Dei, in the image of God. The plants, the animals, the trees, even the sun and the moon were not given that label in the image of God. So human race has a different importance, a different value to God in his creation than everything else. And we have to see it that way. We have to see... Uh, that the creation is a progression, uh, getting to the point where human beings are created. And yes, the world was created for human beings, and everything else that's there is to enable human beings uh, to accomplish uh, their mission. This is an essential tenet uh, within the Jewish faith, and I have to imagine that we share that with the Christian faith. And there are times, Pastor, where, where that's blurred a little bit. I happen to be a person uh, who has been very active uh, for animals in Israel and protecting animals from unnecessary suffering. But I'll never forget one incident. Uh, there was a terror attack where Palestinian terrorists sent a donkey filled with explosives to a school bus. And thank God it was stopped beforehand. And I believe it exploded. And PETA People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals put out a letter of protest to the Palestinians over the fact that they killed the donkey, and uh, not even not even giving any thought to where that donkey was headed, ultimately human beings. We have to make sure uh, that we have our priorities straight. And yes, there is no place for causing animals unnecessary suffering, and there is no place for just wasting things in creation, but to also recognize that creation is there for human beings. Now, as we continue with the Torah portion that we call Bereshit, covering Genesis chapters 1 through the beginning of chapter 6, we're now going to begin chapter 2 and the whole cycle of the earth and of mankind is established here. Chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And Rabbi, I want you to explain to us the beauty and the gift of Shabbat in a moment, but let's start with the first thought here. God did not rest because he was tired, because he was worn out and he needed a break. He willfully chose to. So sometimes people translate Sabbath or Shabbat as rest, I like to translate it as cease, to choose to stop, because that's what God did. He wasn't tired. He chose to stop. 
Yeah, absolutely, Pastor. There's no way we can uh, give physical attributes and qualities of being tired to a God who is beyond uh, the physical. And it definitely means uh, pausing and ceasing. And for us, it means the ability to take a moment out of our physical week and pause and focus on spirituality and focus on God and be like God in that way that we don't do things all the time, but we can choose to stop as well. And that's empowering to know that we can live in a world where we're constantly doing, and then we can also choose to say, you know what, I'm done. I'm checking out. I'm focusing now on family, on spirituality. And that's what the Shabbat is supposed to be in imitation of God, uh, where it wasn't resting from the, from the physical. So talk about how the Sabbath and the beautiful number seven, that really does set your week and it sets your calendar. And talk about how that is really the foundation of your lifestyle. There are people uh, who have said uh, that the Sabbath has, more than the people of Israel have kept Sabbath, Sabbath has kept the people of Israel. That it, it's something that's so integral to our uh, spiritual uh, survival to have that time because during the week people are busy working, earning a living, and it's necessary to have one day a week to pause and spend the entire day focused on spirituality. Even when you're having the physical, the meals, uh, enjoyment uh, on the physical level on that day, it's channeled towards spirituality. And that gives you the strength and the ability to go into the next week and remain spiritually focused. So it's been essential uh, to our survival. It's not just another commandment that we perform or some kind of a another special day. It is the most essential a part of, of Judaism, I would say. And now we get to one of the most important verses in all of this portion and really all of the Bible, Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Again, not an accident of evolutionary good luck, but a willful decision made by God because he wanted relationship with us. He wanted fellowship with us. Adam, the word for man, comes out of the word Adama, which means earth. And so that's part of who we are, how God created us in verse 7. While we do have Adam and Adama and that we do have that physical side to us, we, we must focus on the reality that God breathed into us that soul so that we're body and soul together. And it's a constant battle between the two. Who's going to win? The physical can overcome the spiritual uh, or the spiritual can overcome the physical by uplifting it. We don't believe in removing ourselves to the physical world, but rather trying to uplift it by having it involved in spirituality. So it's a critical verse which shows the two components that make up a human being and also set up the battle that we have to deal with throughout our lifetimes. So we were created by God because he chose to do that. He breathed this ruach, this breath of life into us. And it says in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the tree, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And we'll talk a moment in verse 9 about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But let me ask you the geography question, where was the Garden of Eden? We don't know precisely, but most people, uh, based on both this section and other assessments, say that we're talking about somewhere in Iraq, around the Tigris-Euphrates River, the Fertile Crescent, uh, areas that, that are known to have been uh, very lush. And that's where most of the, our commentaries understand that it was. And that beca is because of the names of the rivers here in Genesis 2. The first is Pishon. And then you have the second river, Gihon, and then you have the Tigris and the Euphrates in verse 14. And so that Middle East region, Mesopotamia, as it was called in the ancient world, is the estimated location of the Garden of Eden. But I think we all agree no one is certain about the exact location. And then you get to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, which we'll talk about his responsibility in a moment, but we do have to go back to verse 9. The Lord made the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And basically the Lord said, this path is the one I have for you, the path of obedience that leads to blessing, 
or there is always the path of disobedience that leads to cursing, and we're going to see what we've already learned, that we all are tempted to run away from God. So, Rabbi, I think one of the teachings here is that God does not want robotic obedience, robotic love. He wants willful choosing to love him, choosing to obey him, and that is set up here from the very beginning. To be honest with you, uh, he sets up this one test for Adam. Adam has everything he needs in his garden. There's no challenges. Everything is wonderful. One test. I'm giving you choice. And he's setting up what life is all about, that we'll constantly have those choices in front of us. And God is telling Adam which way to choose, but he can choose. And there's something pulling at him the other direction. And it literally uh, is a microcosm of, of life and everything that everyone has to deal with throughout their lives. And it's established right from the very beginning. And what was he to do? He was to take dominion and take command over the garden and be the steward of what God has created. Verse 16, God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And that was that decision that man had to obey or to disobey, the calling to submission, the calling to obedience, which we'll get into in chapter 3. Now we get to another very important verse, which is 2.18. The Lord God said it's not good for man to be alone or advantageous or the best design for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Ezar is the word helper here. And Ezar is sometimes used of God as your helper in the Old Testament scriptures. So this is not your servant. This is not your maid. This is not your second class citizen. This is someone there to complete you. That's the biblical design for husband and wife. And it's established equality. You often point out differences in roles, and we agree on that. But equality in the value before God, husband and wife. One of the great biblical commentators in the 19th century, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, actually points to the fact that if you go back for a moment to chapter 1, verse 27, it says that God created him, as, and, but male and female, as mentioned there already. And he basically says that that first being encompassed both male and female, and then God separates them, so to speak, and creates these two beings which complement one another. And he says that was to establish equality, that for the rest of time, it's male and female. How did the Lord do the creation of the wife? It says in verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and then closed up the flesh at that place and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Isha, out of Ish in Hebrew. The first marriage, one man, one woman for a lifetime under the leadership of God. This was the first biblical marriage right here at the end of chapter 2. And if I play a little for you on the Hebrew, you have Ish, which is man. It's Aleph, Yud, Shin. You have Isha, which is the woman, Aleph, Shin, Hey. Uh, you'll notice that there are letters that are similar in the two. The difference is that in man, Ish, there's the Yud, and in Isha, there's the Hey. Uh, yud and Hey together is Ka, which is the name of God. When you have the name of God there, then you can have man and woman. When you don't have God there, if you take out the Yud and the He, in both cases, you're left with Esh, Aleph, Shin, which is fire, which is destructive. That the basis of the relationship has to be spiritual, has to be with meaning in order for it to last. And otherwise, you take that out and it's destructive. A beautiful Hebrew teaching there. As we get to the end of chapter 2, verse 24, the biblical definition of marriage. For this cause, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What cause is this? This is not simply the cause of procreation. This is the cause of aloneness, of being separated. God designed not only man to have fellowship with God, but man to have fellowship with other humans, the most special of that, husband and wife. And so for the cause of aloneness, a person is to leave their family and not to reject them or to hate them, but to make them lower in priority than their spouse and cleave, this verb that means to join together or to become one, to become one flesh. And so that's where we get the prioritization of God first, spouse second, kids third. Yeah, the Talmud talks about this, that yes, you do have the father and the mother are partners with God in the creation, but uh, a time does come when even with all the respect uh, that we're supposed to have towards our parents, uh, the goal is, is that you will establish your own home and your own home takes priority even to your parents. Of course, you have to show respect to them and of course you have to take care of them, uh, but you have a responsibility and a, a, a focus uh, to establish a home. We, uh, certainly within the Jewish faith, and I know that uh, Christians certainly uh, share the concept, the idea of raising your children to get married, that marriage is a goal. It's not, oh, if they happen to come around to it at some point, maybe they'll get to it. But we actually raise them with a goal that reach a certain age, and we actually start talking about marriage, because uh, the goal is to the continuity of the people of Israel, the continuity of the world, building a home of God, of godliness, and it's a major focus largely taken from this verse, which is almost like a command in terms of what's supposed to happen and how it's supposed to play out. And now we continue in Bereshit, the first weekly Torah portion of the new year, and we get to Genesis chapter 3, a very important chapter theologically. It says, Now the serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to Eve... Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so we have to talk about some background theology here. And Rabbi, I think you're familiar with the Christian interpretation of this, is that Satan, a fallen angel, an angel who disobeyed the Lord, takes the form of the serpent and he is the tempter. This is not a regular little snake on the ground. This is a spiritual event and the tempter is Satan himself, according to our interpretation. And he does what he tried to do, which was rebel against God. Now he tempts Eve to rebel against God. And what does he do? He contradicts the commands of the Lord. And Eve responds by misquoting the Lord because the Lord said, don't eat from it. And she modified the words of God to say, don't eat from it or touch it. So take the explanation from there that we believe that this is a satanic or a demonic temptation of man to disobey the Lord. And Eve responded improperly because she misquoted the scripture. So this is definitely an area where our faiths uh, disagree with one another. Uh, we don't believe that angels have the power of choice to disobey God. We believe that angels are just tools of God, extensions of God, almost like a hammer to bang a nail, if you would. And therefore, we don't believe that there's a separate being called Satan that's trying to uh, drive us away. But we do believe that people inherently do have a desire to do bad. And in this particular case, uh, when man was in the Garden of Eden, man was still on a very high level. And that drive to do bad wasn't inside of him, but it was actually this external uh, force, which was, in this case, the serpent. And we do agree, though, 100%, that she went uh, the extra step in terms of uh, the not touching it, and that ultimately leads to uh, a lot of the confusion and a lot of the uh, failure 
uh, that happens here. Not just keeping to exactly what God said and understanding this is what God said and not beyond that, but extending it to not touching it as well. And then once she sees that touching it didn't pro- cause any problems, she had no problem uh, eating from it as well. But the, but the lesson of the story is going to be, first of all, in how man is susceptible to falling to temptation. That's number one. And then we'll get to that soon, but it's also how does man react once they fall. But there's no doubt that this story is for us to learn about human nature, that whether it's the way your faith understands it, that there is some kind of an external force or angel, or whether it's something which is internal, we, there are forces at work to make people do things that are wrong, and we have to be constantly on guard for that. As we look at Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She also gave one to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And there's, again, a lot of theology here, and the way I interpret this and teach this is... What I said a moment ago that Satan wanted to be like God. When we don't submit to the one true God, we are setting ourselves up to be God. I get to make the rules. I get to make the decisions. I am the ultimate decider. That's what Eve did and that's what Adam did. They knew the Lord's command. They chose to ignore that and make their own decisions, which is the basic definition of sin. When we do it our way instead of God's way. One of the questions I often ask is, where was Adam in verse 3, 4, and 5? Where He comes up here in verse 6. Where was he? Did he forfeit his role as a helper, as a protector of his wife? Where was he before he was given the fruit by Eve? I mean, we see very clearly from the reactions uh, which they have that they weren't necessarily there to help each other as they were supposed to be. Uh, to complement one another, to support one another, to give each other strength spiritually, uh, you see that immediately as they begin to blame one another. You know, each one uh, is confronted uh, ultimately uh, by God, and one after another, all they do is instead of standing up and saying, I did something wrong, instead they blame the other. And that blame right away shows that they were not there to help one another, but it's each one for himself. And that could have been part of the problem here in terms of how this sin actually took place. Well, and I find it sad and almost humorous. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. As if there were other people that they could hide behind. There's two people in all of creation. Like God's not going to be able to find them. But it shows the effect of the shame and the guilt they feel because of their disobedience. This is the spiritual loss that was caused by their disobedience. This is sin entering the world. And the Lord God, verse 9, called to the man and said, Where are you? It's not because God was unaware or uninformed. It's because he wanted Adam to be honest and to admit his rebellion. And Adam said, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, not because God is unaware, but because he wants man to repent and to confess. And how did heroic Adam answer, it was the girl who gave it to me, verse 12. Yeah, right away with the excuses, right away with blaming her, and then she's confronted uh, in verse 13, and she blames the snake. Uh, No one taking responsibility for what they've done wrong. And exactly as you said, when God said, Ayeka, where are you? He was also giving Adam a chance to analyze what has happened to me, where have I gone, I have strayed, and opening up the possibility of coming back. Because all God wants after we make a mistake is to confront it and to improve and come back. And that's all he was asking for over here. But sadly, Adam failed, and then Eve fails, and it certainly teaches us a lesson in terms of, again, human nature. And not only our susceptibility to sinning, but what our nature is like after it happens and denial. And the lesson is clear. 
first do everything we can to avoid sinning, but then if it happens, to confront it head on, like King David says later on in the Bible when he's confronted, he says, I have sinned to the Lord. Uh, that's what our response should be instead of making excuses and instead of being in denial. We continue here in Genesis 3 and we get to the curses. Verse 14 says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is one of the reasons we as Christians interpret this to be an actual being, a created being, because of the judgment that God places on a rebellious being, rather than just some sort of force of darkness. And we believe that this is a messianic prophecy. The seed of the woman, a person will come, and he will bruise you or crush you on the head. You will be defeated. And so we interpret Genesis 3 verse 15 as the first messianic prophecy. And then we'll talk about the curses for the woman and the man, Rabbi, but I'll let you comment on verses 14 and 15. So the snake clearly was different than a snake that we understand it today. And it clearly was a being that had some kind of opportunity for choice of, of good and evil. And we focus very very much, and this comment, uh, the commentary is analyze the punishment. And I'll just give you one lesson that we learned from it. You would think that crawling on your stomach and eating the dirt, dust, would be a blessing. Uh, there's, there's food everywhere. Everywhere I turn, I have food. And the commentaries say that having food everywhere and not having a need to turn to God to help with your sustenance, that is a curse. The fact that there's not going to be any relationship with God and he's completely cut off from God uh, that's the ultimate curse that any being can have. And that's certainly one of the lessons that we can learn from this curse. Verse 16, the curse to the woman. The Lord said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Talking about marriage struggles and marriage arguments, I think, is what this is talking about. And competition for leadership is what that means. And then in verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, Rabbi, we interpret this to be, as I said, marriage struggles and relationship problems in marriage, and then the hard work, the toil, the struggle for man to provide for himself, rather than being able to reap the abundant gifts and blessings of the Lord. Yeah, and we certainly have with the woman, uh, pregnancy and the pain of childbirth. We definitely have the difficulty, the challenges of rearing children and raising children, uh, which all certainly is in effect. And then even if today we don't live in an agricultural society uh, where everyone is farming, first of all, we do have people who are, but it's just the worry over uh, earning a living and the, the challenge and the responsibility, which is certainly uh, a focus of everyone's lives that we understand as this curse. Verse 20, the man called the wife's name Eve, which means living, because she was the mother of all the living. And now it says in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Rabbi, I assume this means animal skin garments. So the first animal sacrifice ever performed in Genesis 3.21, God made the sacrifice of the animals to get their skin to make the clothing as a way to deal with the disobedient people. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. You go back uh, you know, for a moment when, when they, were, you know, they, they, they were hiding and they were, they were ashamed. You know, they, they went into hiding over this and they understood also that there was something uh, wrong with their nakedness at, at that point. But we understand that he made garments for them. Commentaries actually say that it might have been actually from material of whatever the fruit was, which they sinned with, uh, and it's sort of the idea of taking 
that which you've done wrong and using it in a corrective force. So we don't understand uh, that it necessarily has to be from animal, but nevertheless, the idea that we correct that which we've done wrong, try to make it better, is certainly uh, a lesson that we see here. As we come toward the end of chapter 3 here, we're back to one of these plural pronouns, Rabbi. It says, verse 22, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. The Lord drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim, these are angels, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see the punishment... The judgment of being excluded from the beauty of the Garden of Eden was a result of the sin of mankind. But again, Rabbi, as you know, we who are believers in the Trinity, we read verse 22, the man has become like one of us, and we see that there as well. And this presents the question for sure within uh, Judaism and exactly what it's referring to. And we certainly understand that it refers to the spiritual beings uh, that were there together with God in the, in the spiritual realm, not on God's level, uh, but angelic bodies that were uh, created. I don't mean bodies in the physical sense, uh, but the angels. But definitely this idea that a major change has taken place. Something has really shifted and it shifts the direction of all of history as man has now failed and now has to leave the Garden of Eden, has to leave that perfect existence, and now we're in a whole new world uh, with a whole new set of challenges. We are going to go to the first part of chapter 6 here in this first Torah portion, Bereshit, and we're in Genesis 4 now, and we have the new start, a world where Adam and Eve are living but not in the intimate presence of God like they did before in the Garden of Eden because of their sin. So it's the the more normal humanity that we are familiar with today. And it says in chapter 4, verse 1, the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, the first human natural birth human being, Cain. And then it says in verse 2, she gave birth to his brother Abel. But then we get into their growing up years. In verse 3, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And we'll talk about the conversation in a moment, but explain to us, Rabbi, why was God pleased with one type of offering but not the other? Well, first of all, and your translation was very precise, it says that God turned to Hevel, or Abel, and his offering, to him and his offering, not to Cain and his offering. Because now we're going to beyond just the physical thing that the person brought, but also uh, their intentions uh, behind it. And the fact that Hevel brought from the best of what he had certainly indicates that he was really sacrificing for God as opposed to Cain, who just brought from his fruits. It wasn't the best of his fruits. He just brought whatever he could find. And that reflects on the intention. God is not looking so much to the gift itself. You can have one person who gives the most expensive gift imaginable to the church or to the synagogue or to charity and someone who gives much less. But there could be a higher level on the person who gives less based on their intent and based on what they are sacrificing. That's exactly what was happening over here because uh, Hevel bringing from the best indicated and God saw his intention. And that's why it says he turned to him and his gift as opposed to Cain and his gift. So it says in verse 5, Cain became very angry because God had no regard or appreciation for his offering. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Verse 8, and Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And we'll continue reading in a moment, but we are in generation number two of humanity, and we already have so much sin in the world that not only was Adam and Eve guilty of 
disobeying the Lord's command in the garden. Now we've got Cain and Abel and one of them giving of their best to the Lord as an offering and one not. But we're all the way to murder, Rabbi, in the second generation of humanity. It's hard to believe, very difficult to believe that things could fall apart so quickly. But nevertheless, again, the purpose of the Bible is to teach us. And we have to learn from this how careful we have to be that a simple sibling rivalry, which obviously was not so simple, can lead to such horrible consequences. And it's, it's there for us to learn from and for us to realize people's nature in terms of desire for honor, competition, and to make sure that we steer away from that. And that's why it is so shocking to see that it happens. And hopefully from that shock, we learn. The Lord said to Cain in verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? And again, this is just like chapter 3. God's not asking for information. He's asking for admission or honesty. And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Now, we first have to address that there was severe punishment for the taking of human life on Cain. Life is a gift made in the image of God, imago Dei. We've talked all about that. But Rabbi, this leads to the question, Cain is afraid that somebody out there is going to murder me as an act of revenge for me murdering my brother, that obvious question is, who else is out there? And I'm not going to buy into the aliens or the other creation, non-biblically recorded creation. I think this has to be other natural-born sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. So there are definitely commentators that say that along with Cain and Abel, there were twin sisters uh, that were born, and they actually point to some language in the in the verses to show that, because they had to be able to marry somebody to have children. So clearly, there were other beings that were created. Uh, we also do have commentaries that say that before Adam was created with a soul, there may have been other human-like animals uh, that were out there, and then they're given souls after Adam is uh, given a soul as well. So that's definitely a possibility. Uh, but yes, there's no way you can escape the conclusion that there were other human beings that were there. So the Lord said, I'll protect you. And he put some sort of, of symbol or sign on him. And it says, whoever finds you, will you'll be protected from them. And then you get to verse 16. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife. Well, again, as maybe uncomfortable as it might be, I think this has to be sisters of his first generation children of Adam and Eve, because I don't think there are other people out there. She conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son, to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod became the father of Mahuayel, and all of these different names. And then you get to verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adab and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And so, Rabbi, we're just a couple generations in, and the evil and the hatred and the, the disregard for human life is multiplying. It happens very quickly, and people fall into competitions with one another and all kinds of challenges. By the way, uh, we do have a tradition that Lamech was blind, and his son Tubalkain used to lead him, and that uh, they were uh, one day... Uh, Tubalkain saw Cain, and he thought that he was an animal, and he told his father 
to shoot an arrow and it killed Cain. And then when Lemach realized that he killed Cain, he smacked his hands together and accidentally hit his son, killing him also. And then that leads to everything that we see in these verses where uh, his wives are upset and everybody's upset and yeah, you, you have the retribution that takes place. But yes, you definitely see a humankind which is prone to failure, prone to sin, and prone to ungodliness very quickly uh, spiraling away from the beautiful existence, the utopian existence in the Garden of Eden. Very troubling set of verses here at the end of chapter 4. We look at now a bit of good news in verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For he said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also was born a son. He called his name Enosh. These men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The last verse of chapter 4 And that appears to me to be an act of repentance and worship to call upon the name of the Lord. Yes, it's definitely a positive step of remembering God, of bringing God into our lives. By the way, in our tradition, many of our names include the name of God uh, within it. Many of the prophets have names like that as well. And uh, that's certainly an attempt at repentance or at coming close to God, of trying to bring God into our lives as opposed to what was happening until then. We continue through Bereshit, this first Weekly Torah portion, chapter 5, is all the names of the various generations of people, and many of them lived hundreds and hundreds of years, I believe, because sin has brought such evil into the world and pain for the human race that it's caused us to lose the ability to live so many long years. And you get to chapter 6, and this weekly Torah portion ends at chapter 6, verse 8. And so chapter 6, the beginning is included, and it's one of the strange passages in your Torah. It came about, verse 1 of chapter 6, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And we'll get to verse 5 in a moment. But Rabbi, the two interpretations that I've learned about this, some people try to take it and say the sons of God mean the priests, the religious people the religious leaders, and they took normal human wives. Others say this is angels, angelic beings, who somehow took on enough human traits to have physical relationships with human women, and the result are the Nephilim, the giants, if you will, and some people even all the way point to Goliath, giant, the Nephilim. So I'll ask you to respond to those two interpretations. Yeah, I think both of those commentaries that you gave are, are traditional ones in our faith as well. Either one, very complicated to understand, very obscure, uh, very difficult, but clearly something was happening that was going wrong and things weren't happening uh, according to plan. But we definitely accept uh, both uh, of those possibilities. And again, something about it is off and is leading to the spiraling away uh, from God that we see taking place leading up to the story of Noah. We'll read the story of Noah next week, but he is introduced here in the last few verses of this week's portion. Chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And here it is, Rabbi, what I think one of the saddest verses in your whole scripture. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Really sad, really difficult. And again, God is not a human being. We're, we're giving human qualities to him so that we can understand. But either way, the concept that man has fallen so far from God is tragic. 
And sadly, you know, you ask ourselves, have we learned from it generation after generation? We see different societies uh, following and following, you know, following in suit and not uh, staying to God and clinging to God the way he has demanded. Or, and the one a good thing we have going for us is we don't have uh, total destruction as a result. But in terms of our actions, I think you could say God would feel the same way in our times as well. And the last two verses, verse 7 says, The Lord said, I will blot out the man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, we'll talk about the ark and the flood next week. But Rabbi, we can't say that God made a mistake, that he messed up, that he created mankind, and now he says, oh no, I did something wrong. So the disobedience of the Lord that he knew would happen, he is not all-knowing if he's surprised by the sin of the generations of people. But he loved us so much and wanted us so much, he created us with the ability to sin, and when we do, it breaks his heart, but he's not surprised by it, and he's not at fault for having created us. Absolutely. And again, that leads us to try to figure out exactly what these verses mean. But that first premise uh, is the starting point, that uh, God is all-knowing and there are no surprises and he doesn't have human emotions. And then we just have to try to figure out how to deal with these verses, which, you know, throughout the Torah, uh, throughout the Bible, God is functioning, as it were, within time. And it's difficult to wrestle with that concept of a being who is beyond time also limiting himself and functioning within time. But that's part of uh, what we have to try to grapple with and understand. But with that pagan place, that he is above time, that first word of the portion that we had, Breshit, he created time, and therefore he doesn't function uh, in, within time. We have come to the end of Bereshit, the first weekly Torah portion, a very long portion, five and a half chapters, covering Genesis 1, 1 through 6, 8. And Rabbi, as we wrap it up today, Give us a sense of where we're heading over the next year, studying weekly the Word of God together. Give us a preview of where we're going. Most of the portions that we're going to study are not going to cover a thousand years uh, as this one does, a little, uh, but certainly sets a tone for us in terms of how each portion is packed, uh, lessons to be learned from the various verses as well. And the starting point for us is Breshit, which is the creation of the world, creation of man, and most importantly, the struggles of man. The Bible is a book which teaches us about struggle, about how to deal with struggle, how to overcome struggle, how to try to prevent struggle, uh, how to connect to God and come back to God uh, once we have failed. And all of that, uh, relationships with others, relationship with God, all of that is covered in Breshit and really sets the tone for the rest of the Torah. Rabbi, it's a great privilege to study the Word of God with you, my friend. I say Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom to all. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.